Money is powerful, isn't it? Money can buy you influence. Money can buy you prominence. If our current presidential race proves to us nothing else, it proves that much. Money can build you a mansion. Money can build an orphanage. Money can build churches. Money can build castles. Money can send you on vacations. Money can bring you leisure. It can feed hungry children. It can dig wells in Africa. Yes, no doubt, money is powerful. But there's a reason why in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said that a man does not consist of the abundance of his riches. And it's because ultimately, money is powerless. See, you could, the thing that you could ask, you could ask Ted Turner, you could ask Robin Williams, you could ask Johnny Manziel, you could ask any number of wealthy yet miserable celebrities. And what all of them would guarantee to tell you is that there are some things that money cannot buy. And those, in fact, brothers and sisters, are the most important things. Money cannot buy you peace. Money cannot buy you contentment. It cannot buy you a good marriage. It cannot buy you joy. It cannot buy you faithful children. But those things in this life which you most desire, those things in your life which you most crave, that, that go beyond the surface level, that go beyond the material into the soul, those things money cannot affect. And so for all of us, we kind of have this love-hate relationship with money, Right? For all of us, we kind of have this love-hate relationship with money where we kind of see it, we need it, we want to make a lot of it, we want to make as much of it as possible, and yet as it comes in and goes out with the bills, we kind of find ourselves hating it, wishing it did not exist at all. And yet we have to understand that God built the economy of the world. He did not build it as it is, it is corruption and all of those natures, but, but God did design the world and the systems in the world, and a part of that was money. And as a result, the Proverbs, and in fact the entire Bible, is filled with instruction when it comes to our money. And so as we are in week seven of our God-fearing family series, I invite you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10. We're going to read the first five verses of Proverbs 10 there together. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Proverbs chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. God's word says, the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to our text this morning, it, it's kind of, it's bookended. This is what would be known in the book of Proverbs as an inclusio. In other words, it's a, it's a short little section of Proverbs that are arranged around a specific thing that kind of all go together. They're connected to one another. And you can see this because they're bookended. 
It begins in verse 1 talking about a child that makes his mom or dad either proud or ashamed. And then it ends in verse 5 talking about the same thing. That a child that is unfaithful, a child that sleeps in, a son that sleeps in brings sorrow or shame or embarrassment or humiliation upon the mother and the family. And so what we would consider this to be in Proverbs 10 is we would consider this to be a rearing proverb. That is that this is a proverb that is intended to speak to what, how we are to raise our children and then at the same time how our children are to be. So this is kind of double-barreled, right? This is double-barreled. This is aimed at mom and dad and the way that you should model it, the way that you should teach it, the way that you should educate your children, the way that you should disciple your children, to use an Iron City word, right? And this is aimed at children. At who, how you should aim to build your life, at who, how you should aim to think, and how you should aim to be, and what you should aim to do. You know, mom and dad, parenting is painstaking work, isn't it? It's painstaking work. It's, it's teaching the same things over and over and over again, right? It's having to have the same conversations day in and day out. It's having to discipline for the same mistakes over and over and over. At our house, it was every child waking up at different times. They can't even align this thing so they're up at the same time. Like, you think they could coordinate a little bit. But it's painstaking. And it's difficult. And you wonder, like, how am I going to get through this? My children don't even notice what I'm doing with them. They don't even appreciate what I'm trying to teach them to be and how I'm trying to train them up. I do all of this and for what? Well, he tells us that though parenting is painstaking work, it is worth it. Why? Because generally wise parents raise wise children. And wise children bring joy to their parents. That God has given you your children not just to enjoy them while they're infants. You understand that? We seem to have this view of parenting that like, if they would just stay babies, if they would just stay tiny, that we would love. And like, we're in that season right now. Like, I walk up and Sarah gets this big goofy grin on her face. And she doesn't even know my name. She just knows I like this guy. And that's a good season. It's a good season. Probably 15 years from now, she's not going to like this guy, right? You tell me that all the time. Thank you for your encouragement. But we have this view that parenting is a blessing when our children are little, and parenting is a blessing when our babies are infants. But then as they grow up, they grow out of the blessing. It becomes more of a burden. It becomes more of a beatdown. A source of negativity in our lives. A source of frustration in our lives. And if we could just like blow through the rest of the, the life, we could just remember the infant years, everything would be good, right? This is not the view that the Bible has of parenting. This is not the view. Instead, what the way Proverbs is trying to teach you is to train your children up while they are young. Train your children up. Do the painstaking work of discipleship in your home. Teach them the ways of wisdom. And then for decades after that, they will be a fountain of joy that you can go to and enjoy over and over and over again. That they will be a pride in your life, a healthy pride in your life that you can go and see and be proud of them and be thankful for them and praise God over and over and to know that, you know what, if I didn't accomplish anything else in this life, I accomplished that. 
You see, mom and dad, your children are your masterpiece. Your children are your masterpiece. But just like any masterpiece, all of the pleasure doesn't come in the beginning. See, to paint any masterpiece, to chisel out any masterpiece, takes years and years and years of blood, sweat, tears, sleepless nights, frustrating days, days in the freezing cold and in the burning hot of summer. You get glimpses of the, the glory of that masterpiece a little at a time where you can, you can kind of see what it's going to be, but it takes years for it to come to completion. Parenting is like that, where you chisel day after day after day. You paint stroke after stroke after stroke. And some days it feels like you take one step forward and 15 steps back. But one day, brothers and sisters, if you will continue along the path of the Lord and disciple your children and teach them the ways of wisdom, you will stand back and you will be awestruck by the masterpiece that is before you. So mom and dad, paint your children in the greatest detail. Chisel, chisel them from the strongest of stone. Invest your life into your masterpiece. Now as we move into the next four verses of our text, we learn that there's a specific kind of wisdom that's in view here. There's a specific type of wisdom that the mom and the dad are training up the child, that Solomon is training up his sons to enjoy, his sons to know. And that is financial industrial wisdom. Now look, I know as soon as y'all heard the interview with Tony, some of y'all ready to go. Some of y'all ready to go to Cracker Barrel and get an early brunch or something. Alright? But there's wisdom here. And the Bible tells us that this cannot just bring guilt into our life. That is not the goal. But instead it can bring joy into our life. It can bring experiences into our life that we can get no other way. It can bring in fact into our life that which money is powerless to buy. And so it says in verse 2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Your Bible may say that ill-gotten gains uh, go away quickly or don't last. The picture here is a play on words. You notice that? Now when we think of a treasure, what do we think of? We think of a profit. We think of a profit, right? That, that if I have obtained a treasure, then I have obtained a fat savings account. If I have obtained a treasure, I have obtained a very diversified stock portfolio. If I have obtained a treasure, then my retirement account is so big that it's going to go to my children's children, right? When we think of uh, a treasure, we think of a profit. But he says that those who have a treasure of wickedness, if those who have ill-gotten gains, their treasure will not profit them. That their bank accounts may in fact be big. Their savings account may be full. Their stock portfolio may be diverse and expansive. But they will not be better off for it. In fact, they will pay a price for it. Implied here is that wicked people are often rich people. The Bible does not say that if you are wealthy, you have the blessings of God. And if you are impoverished, you have the curse of God. It does not say that. 
Sometimes it works out that way, but we can look around our society, even some of the names that I named in the introduction, like Ted Turner and, and Johnny Manziel, and we could go on and on and on. These are not godly people walking with Jesus. No, the wicked may profit for a season. The wicked may be wealthy for a season. In fact, the righteous may struggle for a season. The righteous may live in poverty all of this fleeting life, but this life is fleeting. They won't be in poverty long. They won't be hungry long. They won't struggle long. So it says that those who have the prophets of wickedness, they may have castles, and they may have cars, and they may have luxurious vacations, but they have not a prophet. So that, I think that kind of beckons the question, what is a wicked treasure? What is an ill-gotten gain? When we think of the, how do we make sure that the profits that we have, the savings accounts that we have, the materials that we have, how do we ensure that they are not wicked treasures? I think we might could define it this way. That a wicked treasure or an ill-gotten gain is any treasure, any profit that is obtained by a means that brings dishonor to God. That brings dishonor to God. Now, there, I think there's two layers to that. So that sounds simple, but it's, it's multi-layered. And I want to unpack that a little bit. First of all is the one I think that is most obvious. See, in Proverbs, it talks a lot about like dishonest scales. That you might go to a wheat farmer to buy wheat, and the wheat is so much a pound. And if the farmer, he just happens to have the scale there with him to measure out the wheat for you, and he can slant that scale in his favor so that his margins are much bigger than you believe that they are, so that you're not getting exactly what you pay for. And the Bible says in Proverbs that that is deplorable in the eyes of God. So in view here, is any way that we skim off the top? It's any way we, we cheat our employer out of a few extra dollars. It's cheating on our overtime. It's cutting corners on our taxes. It's slipping fine print into our business contracts that swindle people out of money unexpectedly. It's benefiting from someone else's mistake, recognizing their mistake, and not having the honor and the integrity to go and to tell them. So that it can be made right. It's any way in which you profit from dishonesty. It's any way that you profit by swindling and all of the ways that you justify it in your mind. And all of the ways that you justify it in your brain. Brothers and sisters, if you are benefiting from somebody else's mistake and they are tragically uh, under some kind of, and, and it's going to bring hardship into their life. Can I just say, that is not God blessing you in that day. Don't excuse it that way. Instead, that is a God-given opportunity for you to demonstrate the integrity and the honor of a God-fearing person. You see, the question I think Christians have to ask themselves this morning is what is the price tag on God's glory? What is the price tag on God's glory? What is it worth to you? What is, what is the, the amount that you would have to reach that you would begin justifying doing that which is wicked? What is the amount that you would have to reach that you would justify and find ways to excuse doing what is dishonest? Is it $1,000? 
Is God's glory worth $1,000 to you? Is it $10,000? $100,000? $1,000,000? At what point would you say, well, I'm just going to have to make that work out? What is the price tag of the glory of God? What is the price tag of your own godliness? What is the price tag of not just God's honor, but your honor and the honor of your family? What's it worth? But there's another layer to this, like I said. The the word righteous here in our text is an interesting word and an important word. And I think, in fact, this is the layer of this that we struggle with most often here in the church. I think this is the layer that we as Christians struggle. We all have thieving hearts, certainly. But I don't know how often we're going and holding up the 7-Eleven. But there's another layer. You see, in the book of Psalms, Solomon's dad, David, six different times uses this word righteous to talk about the righteousness of God being poured out to us through his mercy. In other words, that God's righteousness is not some abstract righteousness. God's righteousness is not some righteousness that's just floating around in the cosmos somewhere. No, God's righteousness is a righteousness that is expressed through generosity, mercy, and kindness. It's an active righteousness, a righteousness that does something. Daniel and Jesus both interpret it this way and use this very word as righteousness that is to be practiced in the giving mercifully to the needy. Bruce Waltke, a a Bible commentator and a a, a theologian, he says that one of the primary themes within Proverbs is that the righteous are seen as those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to to the advantage of others, and the wicked are seen as those who advantage themselves to the disadvantage of others. So righteousness here is more than just not robbing a bank. Righteousness here is more than not just skimming off the top or or extorting money or uh, stealing money from your employer. Righteousness here is bigger than stealing from the government. Righteousness here is bigger than keeping things that are not yours and not ever giving back things that you loan. Righteousness is bigger. It's not less than that. But it is bigger than that. That What is expected of God's people to to build up an ill-gotten gain, to build up a wicked treasure is not just to build for yourself a profit from things that are stolen. It is to build up for yourself a treasure from things not given. It's not just hoarding for yourself things that you've stolen. It's hoarding for yourselves money that God would have you to give that you never gave. Profiting from not giving to your church family for the good of the gospel and for the good of the gospel community. It's profiting from not supporting the missionary that God has convicted you by the Spirit to support. It's profiting by ignoring the need around you and refusing to give generously into that need. You see, brothers and sisters, for the Christian... The standard of generosity is not merely a percentage. I think percentages are helpful. I think 10% is a great baseline. But the standard of generosity is not a mere percentage. The standard of generosity for the Christian life is the cross. 
where God himself gave everything, where God himself poured out immeasurably his generosity so that we might enjoy it. Do you understand that you don't have a breath in your lungs? You don't have a beat in your chest. You don't eat one meal at your table. You don't sleep one night under your roof outside of the generous mercies of God. You have experienced a generosity that you could not repay in a million lifetimes. And it is God's people's responsibility. God has called his people to build up his kingdom through their faithfulness. That we are those on earth that are the clearest illustrations and demonstrations of the gospel. The clearest demonstrations of the generosity of God. And so if we live greedy, stingy, self-centered lives, we are not only shaming ourselves, we are in fact detesting the gospel. See, God doesn't just hate thieving hearts. God hates stingy hearts. This is why Paul says, if you can't give cheerfully, don't give. But give cheerfully, give worshipfully, give in joy, give in pleasure, give, give sacrificially. Church, I wish some of us would get some gospel vision for our money. Some gospel vision. Can you imagine what God would do if we would take that moth-eaten, rusted-out paper money out of our wallets and use it for the kingdom of God? Can you imagine? I believe that God wants to use Iron City to fund missionaries full-time across the globe. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that God could use our church to fund a full-time missionary behind the lines of jihad in the Middle East. I believe that God could use the people of Iron City to fund full-time missionaries to North Korea, to destitute parts of Africa, to Mexico where there's not a church being planted in Ahwatempan. I believe that God can use the people of Iron City if we would let go of that moth-eaten money and let it go we could fund church planters in Utah. But what if in the hard days in the beginning of that church plant, they're struggling, they can't figure out, what if you just said, you know what, I'm going to pay your salary, me, for the next three years. I'm going to do it. There are people that can do that. What if we built a facility that matched the 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 schools that everybody's moving out here for and we might be able to to reach some families that we can't build or maybe we don't build one maybe we take what we have and and maximize it i dream of bringing john on full time i just tell you that you know we pay john about a fourth of what he's worth what what he's worth that's not even fair what's fair we pay him about a fourth a quarter can you imagine that guy with his enthusiasm and his passion and his ability coming and being here 50 hours a week, pouring it out day in and day out, reaching people in our community? I see him as being like a community outreach director, organizing relationships. Can, can you just see that guy? You don't even have to know him and you like him. He's not like me. I, you got to warm up to me a little bit. John, you warm up too quickly. 
oh, brothers and sisters, that we would have gospel vision. But can I ask you a question? Why would God give us more ministry opportunities than we are willing to financially support? He won't. He won't. Think beyond yourself. Think bigger than yourself. Think even if I have to disadvantage myself to the advantage of others, by God's grace, I'm willing to do it. I know maybe you're thinking, well, are you going to get it all? Like, it's easy for you to preach. Like, we're paying your salary, bro. Look, this is not a setup where I get to cut off the top. Okay? My salary's set. If the offer, whatever it is today, it's going to be the same. I'm not getting to cut off the top. In fact, we have put in very careful, accountable, uh, accountable steps to make sure that every dollar goes as far as we are able to stretch it. And we're not doing it perfectly, and we're trying to get better at it, but we are putting in systems to make sure that the dollars that you give are accountable and accounted for and are going out to do missions. 28% of every dollar that comes into the church goes to some form of missions right now. So righteousness is not merely not stealing. Righteousness instead is disadvantaging yourself to the advantage of others. It's giving as God has called you to give. So we kind of see the ethics of all of this in verses, verses, uh, two, verse 2. And in verse 3, we kind of get the theology behind it. Read verse 3 with me. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. So there's kind of a flip that's happened, right? Verse 2 says that the wealth, the treasure, is in the hands of the wicked. They're, they're not going hungry. They're doing well. Things are going their way. It's not going to be for their profit in the end, but in that time, it's going well. We get to verse 3, and it's flipped. In verse 3, now it's the righteous that will not go hungry, and instead, the cravings of the the cravings of the wicked are not satisfied. They're insatiable. And the Lord has resolved that he will not satisfy them. You see, at the center of verse 3 is our appetites. It's what we desire. It's what we long for. It's what we want. It's what we live for. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's what we, we feel like we need more than anything else. So let me ask you the question I think verse 3 is confronting us with. When it comes to your money, how much is enough? How much is enough? Because if you live according to the wisdom of the world, it's never enough. It's never enough. It doesn't matter what kind of house you got. It doesn't matter what kind of retirement you got. It doesn't matter what kind of boat you've got, what kind of truck you've got. None of that matters because what you want is not the dollars that you have, but the next one. And the next one. And the next one. It's an insatiable desire. But for the Christian, how much is enough? Whatever you've got. It's always enough. That if you have Christ, you have your treasure. If you have Christ, you have all that you need. If you have Christ, you can be like Paul in Philippians 4 and say, man, I know what it's like to be wealthy. I know what it's like to be poverty. And through all of it, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content in all circumstances. You understand that the dividing line between the Christian and the non-Christian is right there. You understand that? 
That if you've not come to the place in your life where regardless of what Christ calls you to do and regardless of where you are, you say, I have enough, then you have not yet met Christ. You have not yet found the preeminent treasure in all of the universe. And this morning, I invite you to come to him. But if you have met Christ, it's okay if you have a lot. It's okay if you have nothing. It's okay if you're somewhere in between like most of us are. What's only important to you is that you know Christ and you have given yourself to Christ and Christ has given himself for you. You know, Tony said something earlier. He said, you can't outgive God and I had to kind of figure that out through, uh, through the giving of a check that was $18. It looks different, doesn't it? It looks different for everybody. But you know what this comes down to? This comes down to an issue of trust. This comes down to an issue of trust. This is what it's saying in verse 3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. And he's asking, do you believe that or not? Do you believe that or not? Do you believe that the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry? Do you believe that the Lord will satisfy you? Do you believe that Jesus is enough? Do you believe that he is all that you need and all that you want and that for eternity he will pour out his immeasurable riches for you forever? Do you believe that or not? Do you trust God or not? You say, I am convinced that if you knew what God was going to do with every dollar that you gave, if you could see the full gospel impact of the money that you give, if you could see the full gospel impact of the materials that you do without, if you could see the full gospel impact, you would never cling to another dollar if you were his child. That you would never again give begrudgingly. You would never again search for excuses and why not to exercise generosity. But the truth of the matter is, is that you don't see it. And you don't know. Because it's an issue of faith. It's an issue of trust. It's an issue of believing whether or not God, you can't outgive God or not. And brothers and sisters, if you wonder whether or not you can outgive God, I beckon you, look to the cross. Look to the cross and behold a generosity that proves that God's generosity will always supersede your own. It will always transcend your own. As we move into verses 4 and 5, we get to what is really the practical section of our passage. Of, in other words, how it is that we should live it out. How it is that this should make, be obvious in our lives. Let's read it together. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Now there's something I want to point out here that is a little bit shocking to a lot of us. The Proverbs does not, in fact the Bible does not see money as evil. The Proverbs does not see, or do not see, the uh, wealth as evil. It does not see affluence as evil. In fact, the Proverbs have a shockingly positive view of money. As he's greed as evil, as he's hoarding as evil, as he's stinginess as evil. But it does not see money as evil. It does not see ambition as evil. 
It's the love of money that is evil. It is selfish ambition that is evil. It is self-satisfying money that is evil. Not money in and of itself. In fact, God put that there. It's the economy of the universe that God himself designed. And when we come to verse 4, what does it teach us? Well, I don't want to stay here long because I'm going to talk a lot about this next week. It says that if you want money, if you need money to get money, you have to work hard. To get money, you have to work hard. Next week, we're going to spend an entire week, week talking about what the Bible says about Christian work ethic. But the Bible does not honor a person. I've heard some Christians say this way. Well, you know... I believe the Lord's going to give me all that I need. So I work part-time, and I wonder why I don't have anything, right? The Bible does not honor a man who, makes, who works just hard enough to get just enough to skate through life. That is not honorable. It is honorable to work as hard as possible to make what you can make so that then you can give generously. God wants you to work. God wants you to have an honest wage. He wants you to have an honest job and to make an honest living. And he wants you to then take that and to leverage that for his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, pursue gospel ambition. Pursue sanctified ambition. Some of y'all are really sharp. You're really sharp. God gave you a mind for business. God gave you specific skill sets. God gave you the ability to do things that are kind of a, a cut above maybe for a lot of people. It is not honorable if you, for you to try to just lessen that as much as possible and make as little money as possible and live as impoverished as possible. That is not honorable. Instead, have a gospel vision. Try to make as much as you can, as honestly as you can, so that then you can do as much work for the kingdom of God as you can. Like, what if God used you to fund North Korean missionaries? What if? What if God used you to, to plant churches in the Appalachian area? What if God used you? You know what, right now we've got a, a group of ladies that, in our church, that we, we've got some hungry kids in our neighborhood that don't have a lot of food uh, at night, and so what they're doing is on the nights that they're not at school, they're filling up their backpacks with groceries so that they go home and they have plenty of food. What if you said, I'm gonna, I have enough funds, I can cover every single kid in our county, I'm going to make it happen. What if God used you to pay for adoptions? Man, I dream of us being that church. There are parents that want to adopt, there are kids that need to be adopted, but there are thousands of dollars in between. What if we had men and women in this church that said, if it's a gospel-centered family and it's a gospel-focused parent, that we will fund the whole adoption? What if we had that here? What if we had people here that would send young preachers off to seminary and cover their calls so they can go and preach the gospel debt-free wherever the Lord calls them? Have gospel ambition, brothers and sisters. Have gospel ambition. And watch what the Lord will do. Because there is greater joy in generosity than there is in fat savings accounts. There is greater joy in giving generously for the Lord than there is hoarding for yourself. And that is a reward that you will know twice. The joy on this side and the reward on the other side. 
we move into verse 5, it says that to have enough money to take care of your family, to even maybe get some of the things that you want. I do not believe that it is a sin to buy something that you want. I do believe that it's a sin that if you make $200,000, you live at a $200,000 level. I think that's a sin. I think that's ungodly. You, just because you have $200,000 or $100,000 income does not mean you have to have a $100,000 or a $200,000 lifestyle. I believe that's sinful. But it's not sinful to have some things that you want. Those are good gifts from the Lord. There's a balance here. But when you come into verse 5, we see discipline. Discipline. To, to have the things that you need for your family, first of all. To give generously, second of all. To perhaps even have, be blessed enough and lucky enough to have some of the things that you want, third of all. That you're going to have to be disciplined in your money. Today, pretty much every person in here that has a job ha makes enough. God has given you enough that you could live as a generous person. Pretty much every person in here. There, there may be a few exceptions in which the Lord has just bringing you through a different, there, there may be that exception, but for the most part, in, the, in the, grand, uh, uh, the grand sweeping area of the congregation, most of you have enough for you to be a generous person, but there are some of you that are not able. And the reason that you are not able is some lack of discipline. Either early on in your marriage, you lived above your means and took on a mountain of debt that is now suffocating you and you cannot give. Or you make enough, but you don't have a budget, and you just kind of hope that it all evens out at the end of the month. And so you're afraid to give generously or be generous because you're kind of just flying by the seat of your pants. I think when it comes to budgets, it is not only irresponsible not to have a budget, it is ungodly to have a uh, not have a budget. That's, that's, I know that's tough. But it is ungodly to be undisciplined. It is ungodly not to exercise self-control. We've already seen that as a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. That you have been given a stewardship over a collection of resources that God wants you to maximize to the max. How can you do that without a budget? The man in verse 5 certainly had a budget. He's a farmer. He gathers in the summer and he harvests so that he can live on it all year long, right? That if you're a farmer and your harvest comes in the summertime, guess what? Winter's coming. And if you spend all of your money in the summertime, you're going to starve and freeze to death in the winter. But this man is prudent. This man is wise. And so he, he works hard and he, he's not, he does not have a slack hand. He's not sleeping in like the fool. Instead, he harvests in summertime and then he saves and budgets so that it stretches out over the whole year. So let's start there, brothers and sisters. It's simple. Let's start there. Make a budget. Identify the, the reasonable standard of living for yourself and then budget for it. Now I use the word standard of living purposefully. Because you see, the thing we see about the man in verse 5 is he could not have everything that he wanted. Think about this. You've got a guy that sleeps in in the harvest. Why does he sleep in in the harvest? Because it's fun to sleep in in the harvest. It's awesome to sleep in the harvest. Everybody else is working under the blazing sun. Everybody else is doing what they want to do or not doing what they want to do. You're chilling in the air conditioning. You're eating grapes. You're living it up. You've got cheese in your house, man. Everybody else can work. I'm sleeping in today. And don't you think the prudent man would want to sleep in? 
Don't you think the prudent man would like to stay out of the sun? Don't you think the prudent man would like to avoid that difficulty? Of course. He's a human being. But part of being disciplined is realizing that you can't always do what you want to do. And you can't always have what you want to have. So when I talk about standard of living, I want to especially talk just for a second to our young men and our young women. Megan and I are in the same category with you, okay? We're kind of in that same season. We're, we're kind of getting on the other edge. I turned <coughs> 30 this week. Amen? Y'all finally going to have a 30-year-old preacher. Isn't that going to be awesome? You're finally going to have a 30-year-old preacher. But I just want to talk, like if you're a teenager and you're fixing to go off to college or you're in college or you're, you're newly married or you're kind of early on in this thing, can I just talk to you for a second? You do not deserve the standard of living of your parents. It took them 30 years to get there. It took them 30 years of diligence and prudence and savings and hard work. You cannot maintain that standard of living as a newlywed. You cannot maintain that standard of living as a college student. And that's okay. Do you want to know why most young people leave college with a mountain of, school, of student debt? Usually only a fraction of it is tuition. And a large percentage of it is standard of living. That they needed shopping money. And they needed standard, they needed uh, they needed restaurant money, and they needed money to be able to, to hang out with the friends. They needed to be able to stay in that apartment complex instead of the more affordable option. And so they want to maintain a standard of living, and they do it on the dollar that they're going to have to pay for the rest of their life and be buried under it. Do you know why most young married couples have a mountain of debt? Because they're living above their means. They're driving a car that they cannot afford. They're living in a house that they cannot afford. They have things in that house that they cannot afford. They have a wardrobe that they cannot afford. Listen, there is something honorable about driving a 200,000 mile car. There is something honorable about having a 32 year old washing machine. There is something honorable about living in a house that is smaller than the bank will allow. There is something honorable about that. There is something honorable about taking care of the shoes that you have so that you can wear them for a couple of years. There's something honorable. And brothers and sisters, I want you to have a grander vision. I want you to look beyond the here and now. I want you to look beyond today. And I want you to look decades down the road. Do you want to live it up now or do you want to thrive with your family for decades? Be set free, man. Be set free. You don't have to have a high standard of living. Like, when you're 22, why do you need a lot? You can camp in a tent, man. You ain't even got kids in the house most of the time. Just get a nice tent. Splurge a little, you know. Go to REI, pick you out a good one. But don't get sold on the lie of the, of the lies of the marketing directors of all of the Fortune 500 companies that you have to have all of these things right now. Because you will pay for them dearly. Save prudently. So, so identify a standard of living that is reasonable. So whatever you think it should be, maybe go back a couple of notches. That's probably where it should be. 
Identify a standard of living that is reasonable and making your budget next. Budget savings. Can I just tell you winter's coming? Winter's coming. Maybe you're in a season of harvest. Maybe you're in a season in which the wheat's coming in. Maybe you're in a season in which you're kind of making hay. But let me tell you, winter is coming. And it is an honorable thing to take care of your family in the winter. It is an honorable thing to be able to continue on about the work of the Lord in the winter. It is an honorable thing to not have to go back to mom and dad and ask for a loan. It is an honorable thing. Save prudently. If it's $5 that you can save, save $5. Proverbs says that there's not usually a windfall. That great wealth is accumulated $1 at a time. And finally, budget generosity. Budget generosity. Don't just think if I get around to it. Don't just think if I have some left over. The kind of righteous man that disadvantages himself to the advantage of others is the kind of man that plans his giving. Put it into your budget that I'm going to support my church family with this. If you can go to 10%, I think that's the right way to start. If you can't start at 10%, start where you can start. Start at 1%, start at 2%, start at 5%, and then aim to go. And then don't stop at 10%, keep going. You can support missions, support missions. Put money back for yourself to go on mission trips so that the Lord can change your heart. Cooper Turner told me one time that, that he keeps a few dollars in his wallet all the time so that if he sees someone in need, he can take it out and give it to them. In a debit card society, what kind of godliness is that? What kind of wisdom is that? Budget generosity into your budget so that you might know the generosity of God and the joy of God in a way that you've never known it before. So that in fact, your budget is gospel-centered. See, you can't have a gospel-centered life without a gospel-centered budget. What you spend your money on says something about you. What your finances look like say something about you. What does yours say about who you are? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive me for all of the times I...